Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 39 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app. Uh, Our favorite is Overcast, which is now free, so you should go check that out. Or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Hey, also take a minute to check out our Lawyering Survival Guides at Lawyerist.com slash guides, or you can click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code podcast to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form. We are grateful to Ruby Receptionists for once again sponsoring today's podcast. Try Ruby now and experience the serene productivity that comes with having someone else answer your phones. Sign up at callruby.com slash lawyerist and Ruby will set you up for free. So on the theme of today's podcast, which I will get to in a minute, I wanted to talk about whether there is a real opportunity to find paying clients in the access to justice gap. Okay, so... I don't want to be the contrarian because there definitely are huge problems in access to justice, but I feel like it's such a an ill-defined buzzword that everybody uses to meet their own needs. Well, that's like when why we, I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, like when we talk about access to justice, is this that there aren't enough public defenders? Is it that middle-income people aren't getting the best divorce lawyer? Is it that poor people aren't getting someone to defend them from a restraining order when they're beating up their girlfriend? Like, what are we talking about? Let me shrink it a little bit. Um, When we're talking about access to justice, we're talking about all of those things. But I wanted to focus specifically on the gap. And the gap is um, this, it's a little bit vague, but it's pretty clearly defined. It's the gap between people who are eligible for legal service, free legal services and able to acquire them and people who um, are able to afford a private lawyer. And the idea is that the number of people who fall into that gap where they really can't afford a lawyer but they aren't eligible for legal aid, um, that that gap is growing. And it's a, you know, uh, conceptually it's a pretty big gap because legal aid is really available only to the poorest of the poor um, uh, because the the income limits are a little bit silly. And then... um, and then hiring a lawyer is expensive enough that many lawyers couldn't afford to hire themselves, given where the salary, the income ranges fall for lawyers. Um, so it goes well up into, I would say, um, the middle class. And and that's the gap that we're talking about. I, I totally understand that. But are we talking about practice areas and legal issues where there is a need for a lawyer or one where a lawyer would be helpful or one where a better lawyer would for sure get you something better. Uh, yeah. So for instance, like there are a lot of middle income people who choose not to spend 800 or $2,000 to have someone draft them a will, but they can still get a will and they probably could get one cheaper even from a lawyer. Is that an access to justice issue? Well, and, and maybe I'm going to throw out uh, some 
stats here that maybe inform this, maybe not. Um, I've been reading a collection of essays from the ABA called The Relevant Lawyer, Reimagining the Future of the Legal Profession. And in one of them, law professor Thomas Morgan says that in the 1960s, 55% of the New York bar primarily represented individual clients. And by, the ni- by 1995, that was down to 30%. Um, meaning all of the growth or most of the growth growth was in representing business and government. And that's New York where there's a lot of business, so maybe that's skewed, maybe it's not. Um, but it kind of suggests to me that maybe um, maybe the representing individuals is sort of static and it's a shrinking segment. I don't know if it's shrinking all uh, you know across the board, but, you know, maybe maybe that's true. Maybe individual clients are finding other places to get their legal work done, and they're not really craving lawyers. That's that's the concern that I have. I'm not sure. Well, and to be clear, I'm not disputing that there. Are, I, I totally concede that there are lots of unmet needs, and that justice is an important issue. Oh yeah. It's just that I think it's become such a buzzword that I don't think people are often talking about the same thing when they use it. No, and that's really important to keep in mind. And you know, so what I'm kind of wondering is, we we keep um, we hear a lot of people talking about you know the op- all of the opportunity right now to survive the the coming catastrophe in in law practice is figuring out ways to serve the access to justice gap by doing things more efficiently. Um, you know, virtual law practice, maybe alternative billing structures, cutting costs, cutting fees, um, and I guess I just am kind of wondering how how real is that? How how realistic is it that um, a solo in Iowa can compete with other low cost legal services like, say, LegalZoom that may be doing a good enough job? Right, and does and and I guess this is my question of definitions: Is there anything LegalZoom does? That helps reduce the access to justice gap. Absolutely, I mean, is, I think are small business forms and trademark applications and wills justice? Uh, in the in the broad sense, I think yes. I think LegalZoom okay. is uh, LegalZoom would see itself as part of the solution to the access to justice gap, for sure. I've never heard them talk that way, so I'm not sure they do think that. Um, that I should do a little Googling. I, I feel like I have heard that and heard them talk that way, but, um, um, but potentially not. I guess, I guess part of my curiosity is what, I mean, what power does, what are we really talking about here? If somebody goes to Google and wants to get a will and they're in, you know, podunk, Minnesota, I'll use my own state so nobody else feels insulted, hopefully. But, um, you know, are they really going to choose a, a small town lawyer um, no matter how innovative their law practice is, and is that lawyer really going to make be able to make a living? You know, sucking down clients from Google and um, serving them virtually with lower cost forms and templates and things. I don't know. How do we solve this, Sam? Well, what I think we need to do is is what we are doing on this podcast, which is um, trying to find people who have innovative approaches to practicing law and see how things are working for them. Um, and we have, you know, we had a long, a nonprofit law practice from, uh, I think Utah and they had a really cool approach and we're apparently thriving. Um, and, and I think we should talk to more and more people like that. So, um, I guess maybe what, what I brought this up for was to, um, announce a, a focus where I, I want to try and dig up more 
innovative practices. And if our listeners are aware of people who are trying to make inroads into the gap as a way of getting clients, I'd love to hear from them and bring them on the podcast to talk about how things are going. Awesome. Sort of related to this chat, which is why I brought it up, uh, today I am talking to a nonprofit legal services director about how we can do a better job representing low-income clients. Hi, I'm Martha Delaney. I'm the Deputy Director at Volunteer Lawyers Network. And Volunteer Lawyers Network is a legal services nonprofit in Minneapolis where we pair volunteer lawyers with clients in poverty so that we can protect our clients' um, basic needs. And we really have this vision that everyone have access to the legal services that are essential for stability and well-being. I've been here for about a dozen years, and I really like this work of just pairing um, attorneys, volunteer attorneys who are interested in providing a service back to the community, pairing them with our clients who just have so much need for access to the court system. And I should I should say I'm on the board of Volunteer Lawyers Network, and I, I think I've got notes going back to 2008 or 2009, so I've been on the board for a while. But um, not all states have this sort of an organization where if you want to volunteer, you basically just go send an email and then you they will help you volunteer, which is awesome because sometimes the biggest hurdle to volunteering is knowing how to get started. So in Minnesota, we make it easy. That's true. I think we're very lucky here, Sam. Yeah. So what uh, what I wanted to talk about today is something that came up recently for us, and I know that you do some teaching about it, which is um, that I was going to say the challenge in the challenges to representing impoverished clients, but I think um, maybe a better way to look at it is just how to um, modify the way that you work with clients or how to accommodate a different kind of clientele. And this isn't just for people who do pro bono, right? It's for people who represent anybody. These problems are just bigger for impoverished clients. Um, but it comes up for plaintiff's lawyers a lot too, who are working on contingency where, you know, you're not necessarily working with upper middle class clients all the time. Right. Yeah, and I think the bottom line is the same. I think we are always looking at how do we create an effective attorney-client relationship. And it's much easier when it's someone that we're like. You know, we mm-hmm. don't have to, we may not even know all the differences that might exist when we're representing someone from poverty or even somebody from a different um, educational or cultural background. So, yeah, the bottom line is the same, but it just can take more intentionality when you're working with someone who's not, who doesn't have the same background or the same assumptions that you might have. So you, both both through giving um, talks to, to other lawyers and just with working with other lawyers, uh, a lo- I, I assume a lot of concerns come up. And what are the sorts of things that people are worried about, um, sort of the, the pain points from the lawyer's perspective? What do they think it's going to be like? And what are they worried about when representing impoverished clients? Oh, yeah. Well, I hear this a lot. In fact, I have some friends who are sole practitioners who are really concerned about volunteering, and, and I have mixed success with uh, convincing them. But So I would kind of categorize, I'd say there's four or five main things that I hear when, when attorneys are not really excited about volunteering to help someone in poverty. And one of them is, I'm worried they're not going to be invested because they can get the service for free. Uh, that's a really interesting one, and I've got I've got some thoughts about that. Um, another one that's really common is we're, I'm just worried they're not going to follow through. You know, I'm going to do all this work, and then I'm not going to be able to get a hold of them, and what good did that do anyway? Um, or, you know, I'll set up a time to meet with them. I'll put aside my time, and gosh, we all are so busy that that's a real, um, that's a real gift, you know, and then the client does, and then they're concerned the client won't show up. Um, and then something I often hear or 
maybe I don't hear it, but I um, ask attorneys if they're thinking it, and they always kind of laugh, like, yeah, I am thinking that, is why do they have a better cell phone than I do? Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I understand that. I understand exactly where that concern is coming from. So so those are kind of what I, like, if I had to categorize, like, the four main concerns, I would say that that are those. And then the one I would add is just that, you know, people um, like me, I mean, people who grew up in middle class or maybe even had a stint of situational poverty, um, you know, I my parents were divorced when I was young, and we had a year where it was kind of tough. You know, I was mixing powdered milk so we would get by, um, you know, but we just don't typically, unless we've had better um, exposure, we don't really understand um, generational poverty or working class poverty or immigrant poverty. And so if I had to say what what I thought the main barrier of lawyers uh, trying to help others that might be in poverty, it's just we don't understand poverty. So maybe maybe we should start by taking debunking or, or just shedding some light on those four things that you brought up, because I think um, I think they're interesting. And like the first one um, kind of irks me to hear that the clients won't be investigated or in, I'm sorry, invested in their case because they've got a free lawyer. Um, I mean, I, I I get where that's coming from when it's, uh, you know, like a public defender. Um, they feel like they're getting a cheap lawyer or, you know, the the they feel like the lawyer is being employed by the state. And so they're just throwing them whatever they can. But uh, but when you're volunteering, that's a different scenario. It's not the, you know, you can't even, I, I, I have a lot of respect for public defenders, but, but I get the idea that, you know, they're just an underpaid lackey of the state uh, where that perception comes from, even if it's not really true. But when it comes to a volunteer lawyer, you're actually getting a lawyer who might be paid, you know, who might be a partner at a big firm, who might be a very successful solo in their field. You're not getting a cheap lawyer, so... Right. I've never I mean, had the I'd experience say, that they that they take me for granted that when I'm volunteering at least. You have or have not? I've never had that experience. I feel like they've all been all of the clients that I've had um, pro bono and all the clients I had who were my contingent fee clients were um, grateful for my help and respectful of my time and it was not um, they didn't behave as if they were getting a free or a cheap lawyer. Right. I believe that. I, I believe that. I think that it is more of a concern than a reality. And actually, I think maybe I wasn't clear. I think that what the way that you're framing it is actually something else that I would highlight, which is whether clients trust us. Mm-hmm. And part of whether they trust us is if they don't understand why we're doing it, they might say, you know, why are you doing this for free? Like, what is what's the deal with that, you know, and, and I found that it's really useful if that comes up to just say something like, you know, I'm volunteering my time both because it's, it's an, it's a professional ethical obligation of the lawyers. I mean, we are, we are part of a court system that we need to make sure works well for everybody. So there is justice for all. That's part of our responsibility. Um, and also that, um, I just really believe in, in access to justice for all. And so I want to do this service for free. That can really help with the trust issue. The, the way, what I was trying to say was that the, the attorney says, I'm worried that the client won't be invested mm-hmm. because they can get the service for free. Or I'm concerned that they're not going to, that I'm concerned that they're going to make or ask me to do things that, you know, are ridiculous use of my time because they don't have to pay for it. So why would they value it? Yeah, I. It's interesting. I. I don't. Uh, I didn't find that either because I. 
Um, I felt like the the clients were, they had a problem that they really needed to solve. And if they were going to make the effort to show up to the first meeting, I mean, this kind of shades into the next one. If they were going to make the effort to show up to the first meeting, they were going to see it through to the end unless there was some reason they couldn't. In fact, okay. my, my pro bono clients were some of my most responsive clients and uh, my most my most invested clients because <laughs> this well, was their chance to take care of it. And I would say two things about that. I would say that I think you were especially clear with your pro bono clients. So you were, you were following that level of intentionality or awareness that I think many of us find hard to do. Um, mm. If you've had that experience, I really think that was part of it. Um, and then, but I just want to kind of throw in too, you know, when people say that to me, like, oh, they're going to get it for free. I don't think they're going to value it. You really need to pay for something to value it. Um, I'll just say to people, how many people here have paid for gym membership? and haven't gone to the gym, you know, that's an example, paying for something and then not really valuing it. So um, I agree with you that investment of, uh, they're not invested is actually, I don't think that ever happens. I think we might. Well, I was just going to say, you and I talked before that there are different kinds of payment, right? Like they're they're getting, uh, they're not having to pay a retainer but they are having to pay in other ways. And so they are, it's, it's expensive. It's still expensive to get a free lawyer. Right. Once you get the lawyer, that doesn't mean you have access to the court system, really, because you still have to take time off of work. You still have to get there and get to your lawyer's office. You might have to um, arrange for child care. You might have to take some time off to go get the paperwork. You know, participating in the court process takes a lot of resources. And I don't think, I mean, as lawyers, we don't think about that. But in fact, you know, we, it takes so many resources that most people hire a lawyer. Even lawyers, they say to lawyers, if you represent yourself, you have a fool for a client. <laughs> even yeah. lawyers should not represent themselves. Right. And so, um, yeah, it is, it is, even when we at VLN are able to, to pair a volunteer lawyer with a client, that does not overcome the um, barriers to the court system. There's still a lot of um, there's still a lot to overcome. So, are is is follow through and no shows? Um, are those problems with? I mean, do you think those are legitimate problems? I think that they can happen, and I think they can happen for a number of reasons. Well, they do happen. I don't. I shouldn't say they can happen. They do happen. I think that one really common reason is that, um, for example, if they don't follow through, or let's take the example, actually, this is a good example. So the, the lawyer meets with the client and then says, so yes, you know, you would like this service. Um, you'd like me to um, file a motion or um, a motion or a um, file an action to get your security deposit back. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take about three months for us to get into court, and then once we get the judgment, then we'll need to collect it. And so, um, why don't? So, what I'll need from you is this papers, and here, sign the retainer, and let's let's just go ahead. I think what many of us may not do is remember that when we say all that to a client who's living in poverty, the benefits of getting that security deposit back. Well, the benefits of getting a judgment to get the security deposit back in three months may not be um, worth the, the, the cost. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think that sometimes what happens when attorneys say, oh, my client didn't follow through, I think one way to avoid that is to make sure when we're meeting with clients to, make, to give them all the options. So one option is, you know, this is, what it, this is what it would take to get your security deposit back. And, you know, yes, you would get this, these damages, so you'd, you know, get some extra money, but it's going to be in three months, and then you're going to have to collect the money on your own somehow. Um, you know, there might be the alternative of you do nothing, and then... Um, you may save yourself all this work and all this time off of work and getting the paperwork and all this for a benefit that is far down the road and you don't know if it's going to make a difference anyway. Um, or you might, you know, call some social services or whatever. And I, I think really that as lawyers, one of our biggest skills is that we are problem solvers. And so really outlining different ways that the client might address their problem when they come to you um, it both gives the client more options and it also ensures that the client can then tell you which option they want. And I think, I think that's a really important thing. And I, there was just a great article um, in uh, the new Republic, I think about um, what's different when rep- you know, with, when it comes to planning for the future, when you are in poverty and, um, and part of it is just that you're, you're just trying to get through, today and tomorrow and something that uh, a benefit that might happen three months off just isn't as important and so I think the key and I think this is what you're getting at is you just need to um, your you need to make sure that you understand what your clients uh, best best options are in light of what what their situation is right exactly. we, we tend to we tend to go to something like that and say well the best outcome is I get you this money but that might not actually be the best outcome for the client. Exactly. Um, you know, getting getting some money for them tomorrow may actually be a better outcome for them than winning the case, even if it's slam dunk in three or six months, um, because maybe they need three hundred bucks tomorrow, even if they could get two thousand bucks in six months. Exactly. And it probably makes a lot of sense to talk about that <laughs> and make sure that that's really what they want to do. Um, but if they're going to get evicted this month, if they can't make rent and they need three hundred dollars, the pre- that has a present value that's much higher than the future value of a two thousand dollar check, maybe. Right, and we probably don't think about that because for us, it's like you know, waiting three months. Okay, you know, that's a bit of a drag, but you know, I've got some savings. I'll just cover that in the meantime, and then I'm going to get this back. You know, but but right for someone in poverty, they have often there are going to there are going to be so many crises potentially between now and three months. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're there's you know might get evicted, like you kind of mentioned, or they might have a, um, they missed the bus and then they lost their job or their partner lost the job or, you know, their child is expelled from school because the child didn't have enough to eat. So he or she was acting up. I mean, there's just so many things that can happen that when I, when I, when I've studied just to try, you know, I'm from middle class. I've never been in generational poverty. So I've done a lot of work to try to learn about it and I'm still learning about it. But one thing I've learned is that, you know, the skills that it takes to survive in middle class, such as, you know, planning for the future, keeping an appointment book, filing papers for later reference, um, knowing what neighborhood has the right, has the good schools, um, knowing what a mortgage is, all these things are meaningless if you're living in the crisis of poverty, you know, mm-hmm. then you're going to need more of the skills of you've got to be able to think on your feet. You've got to be able to move in less than a day. You've got to know where the good shelters are or where the restaurants are that might, you know, have food left over at the end of the night. There's so many different or how to walk in a, in a, in a dangerous neighborhood without getting accosted. I mean, there's just 
how to how to wash your laundry in a laundromat without getting them stolen, uh, your clothes in a laundromat without getting them stolen. I mean, these are things we would never think about, and yet right. they're uh, much. The skills that people in poverty have are suited for the experiences that they've had and the lessons they've learned. So let's talk about that last one, um, which comes up. uh, Actually, it's been coming up a lot in conversations about the Syrian refugee crisis, which is um, why does this person have a better cell phone than I do? Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. In fact, in my trainings, I just I just stop everything and I say to people, you know, why would that be? Let's brainstorm. Why would it be that they would have a better cell phone? And, you know, usually people come up with it. I mean, really, if we stop to think about it, usually people come up. So, you know, they're in poverty. They uh, need, they may need to move, uh, you know, at a moment's notice. So they need small things that are portable. Um, they don't have a computer, so it's very useful to have, a, a, you know, some access to the Internet. Um, when they move frequently, you know, it's not good to have a landline. It's much better to have a cell phone. It can serve as daycare. Um, you know, if you have a child and you need to have your child be um, not bothering you for a little bit, you can put a movie on your phone mm-hmm. and have it, you know, play. Um, it's status. You know, in a, you know, people in poverty get the same message as we do about what it is to be cool and what you need to own and who you need to look like or whatever. And so there's some sense of, okay, you know, I don't have much, but I've got this cell phone. Um, so really when, when we think about it, we usually can come up with, um, with reasons why, you know, so they, they don't have all these other things. They probably don't go out to the movies because movies are what, I don't even know what they are now, $10, $12 to go out to a movie. So (laughs) anyway, so it really, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I suppose if you're on the coast too. So there are many reasons why, um, someone in poverty might own things that we look at more like why am I helping you for free when I don't even have the ability to pay for that? But in fact, we have um, so many other things that are, um, that that one thing that they have is fulfilling all of those needs you for them. Know, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm at a, uh, I'm also on the board of another nonprofit. And um, one of the, we're, one of the things that we're really trying to emphasize right now is it's long past time that we made our website mobile responsive because a huge percentage of our low-income uh, clients are uh, are going to be looking at it from a phone because that's their only internet access. Um, right. You know, we, I mean, not, if, if you're not, if you can't afford cable right there, you might as well buy a phone because... Um, you know, having cable for 12 months is three times what it costs to have a decent phone for a year. Um, <laughs> so That's good. I'm going to add that to my list. I hadn't thought of cable. Well, I mean, you know, if you just add up all of the things that you have a phone for instead of, like, yeah, right, you don't have exactly. a computer at home, and you don't, which means you don't have an internet connection. You right. might not even have cable. Like, you know, it's it's not even it's not even an expense worth talking about because you're probably using a, a cheap $20 a month data plan too. It's, you're not getting the same Cadillac Verizon plan that I have. Um, well, and you're probably paying for it over time. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably didn't buy it all at once. Yep. You're probably right. So, no, so right. I, I, I just don't, I, I'm not, I'm not surprised when I hear that, but I'm a little discouraged by it because it, it turns out that um, phones are the main way that people who are of limited means do use the internet. And the internet is the thing that people need to be able to access to get, you can't get public benefits without an internet connection anymore. I don't think so. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I mean, I think you can, but I think it's much easier many, you know, to, to access those, a lot of services, public services over, over the internet. So, right. 
So let, let's let's flip it around and, and talk about it from sort of the client's perspective. What are some of the barriers to accessing justice that those in poverty experience? I mean, we talked about childcare is 10 or 50 or 100 times harder when you're impoverished than it is when you drop your kids off at daycare every day um, to get to a meeting during the day with your lawyer. But what are some of the other things that tend to come up? Right. Well, some of the some of the ones that are more obvious, um, and again, I ask people to kind of tell me what they think they might be. You know, if you if you're if you're making, I mean, for example, for for someone to be in poverty, for a family of four, they're making about twenty four thousand dollars a year. You know, so they're they're not they're alternating which bills they're paying. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're in a they're in a bad apartment, they're in a bad neighborhood, they're in a school neighborhood that probably isn't that great. You know, all these things um, they. So once we start talking about that, often people will tell me, which is great, you know, so like the transportation issue, you know, do you drive, you know, here in Minneapolis, I don't know uh, if this is worse or not than other places, but, you know, you drive downtown, you pay for parking, it's like $20 mm-hmm. for two hours. It's, I don't even like really paying crazy. for parking downtown. <laughs> My gosh, but then if you take the bus, it's like you've got to know which corner to be on, and if you transfer, you have to know what that is. If you miss the transfer, I'm someone who takes the bus, and I don't even, I can't even figure out which corner to stand on for a transfer. <laughs> so, but it's a new place. You know, it's not only just just the method, but it's also like, okay, they've got to figure out, like, where, how do I get to this new place? Um, you know, getting time off from work, I think maybe one of us mentioned that before, but, you know, most of the people in poverty are working, and most of them are working in jobs that are not going to give them an hour off here or there to see you, you know, right. or, or, or go to court. It's like, well, if you leave, you just don't have to come back. There's plenty of other people who are dedicated who will work at this job without asking for time off. Um, you know, another is just the logistical um, challenge of keeping contact information updated. You know, if you're moving frequently, um, if you have a cell phone and then someone steals it or you lose it, um, you know, there's, it's often, I think that is, that's another actually huge challenge I should have mentioned before, which is just when we're representing somebody in poverty, we can't assume that we will be able to get a hold of them easily. When we first meet with them, I recommend that we get a primary way of contacting them, an alternate way of contacting them, a contingency way of contacting them, mm-hmm. and an emergency way of contacting them, which is actually what the military does, I just learned. for. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and so I kind of learned a lesson there, but just... Um, just uh, so that when things happen, we're still able to get in touch with the clients. Well, and, and part of that is, you know, we, we like to think, you know, we always put in our retainers, you know, it's your job to update me when you move. Um, but which works fine for people who are used to, who, you know, their lawsuit is one of the more important present things in their mind. Um, but, you know, for somebody who's got a, a long list of survival stuff above that it may not and and maybe doesn't have a a filing system and a a to-do list app on their phone that they check all the time and you know it it just may not be top of mind to oh i got to remember to call my lawyer who i haven't seen in two months and probably won't see for another two months because there's not even an appointment on my calendar um i got to remember to call them and update them just in case right it's it's just not the top priority um right cell phones are making it easier though 
Well, they are. And so that kind of comes back to our first concern that lawyers might have, which is, well, see, they're just not that invested. You know, they have all this other stuff going on. Why should I? But but really, you know, when we make an effort to help our clients overcome those barriers, um, they are invested. I mean, they, they need the protection of the courts. They need it even more, I think, than you or I do, because you or I... Um, you know, people kind of know that we have access to the courts. I mean, we're not strutting it around, but people aren't going to try to take advantage mm-hmm. of us. They're not going to try to split my utility or have me pay for the utility for the whole building, or they're not going to, you know, target me for some great deal, and then it turns out I signed away my house. They're just not going to. So people in poverty need the access even more than we do, I think. Um, and even though, as you're mentioning, they have all these intervening things, to the extent that we can help them overcome these barriers, which I think is our responsibility as a professional for any of our clients, help them overcome barriers, um, you know, language barriers or disability barriers, whatever they might be. Um, that That is so important to them. I think we, we need to be a little bit more flexible when it comes to our expectations for um, our lower income clients, you know, returning our calls. Um, it may take a little bit longer to get in touch with them. It may take them a little bit longer to find the time to call us back. Um, you know, they may not be able to call us back until they get off work at eight o'clock. Um, there's some different things, but you've touched on it a few times and I want to talk about trust. Yes, I do too. I do want to say one other thing first. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Which is that, you know, as I'm thinking of hearing us, hearing this conversation, I'm thinking that it would be so easy for someone to think, why would I put in that much work. Like, it sounds like a ton of work and extra effort when, I mean, we are so busy already. I mean, none of us, I mean, you know, none of us really has a ton of time to be doing this. And so a lot of people are like, wow, why would I take on all this extra work? And and I'm sure you have an answer to that. But my answer to that is that, you know, it really takes, it usually takes about one or two cases just to kind of figure this out. Mm-hmm. And then it's really second nature. It doesn't really take that much more time once you kind of get the sense of kind of the things, you know, the, the different types of things that you, that you would go over with the clients in poverty. And the rewards are so great. You know, our, our, our volunteers, I get to hear um, how happy they are when they've been able to um, help a client really and make, it, make a real difference in their life. And so um, I would just bring that up because I wonder if some of the people that are listening might be thinking, wow, okay. Well, and not, I would say, not, not you know, me. humble yourself a little bit um, because your middle, your upper class, your well-off clients have the same, have, have their own things that they would rather be doing than returning your phone call in an hour. Um, but you're just not as aware of them because they are more used to, um, you know, quickly responding on business issues and, and on things that are really top of mind for them. But um, it's right. worth stopping and considering that you may not be the most important thing in their life every time you pop into it. Mm-hmm. And so you might want to consider whether or not it actually should be on you to have different expectations about how you go about contacting your clients and what sorts of expectations you have for them about timeliness and getting back to you. And, you know, I think a lot of lawyers have this sort of everybody should drop everything when I call mentality. And just because they do doesn't mean that they're happy about it. And so you may want to, you know, add a little humility and um, be be uh, understanding when they don't and grateful when they do. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. But I, I think like trust that. is interesting because I think there's like this natural barrier between um, 
non non lawyers who don't normally have access to the legal system as just a regular it's not an assumption for them that they can just walk up and get a lawyer um, and the lawyers who represent them and I think that's really true for personal injury lawyers and um, employment discrimination lawyers and consumer rights lawyers as well as um, as well as pro bono lawyers um, trust is sometimes it's not always there right away it's something you kind of have to earn over time mm, absolutely and I think you know, part of it is that the, our clients, uh, when I say our, I mean clients who live in poverty, they have not experienced the courts as a friendly place to them. Mm-hmm. The courts are not set up. You know, you were just talking about, like, the clients who, or, yeah, our clients who, you know, are used to returning calls. They're used to updating our, their addresses. They're used to, um, you know, the paperwork, getting us certain things in time or whatever. That is so middle class, you know, that is such a middle class paradigm. And before we kind of say, well, you know, those in poverty kind of need to get used to it, right now in this country, it's like 25 or 20, I can't remember, I think it's 20% of families are in poverty. And 20, oh gosh, or, or maybe it's of children. I mean, there's, there's a huge percentage of our country's population, which is in poverty and poverty is defined really low. So I just, well, you know, and I, just, I'd, I'd want to define poverty a little bit differently, which is anyone who can't afford a lawyer, which is like a lot of lawyers actually fall into that gap, <laughs> you know? So right, right, when we're talking absolutely. about the, you know, when we're adding the access to justice gap, which does constitute people who can't afford a lawyer onto the people who are technically in poverty and not eligible for legal services, like that's that's the the gigantic group that I'm even thinking about here. Um, and some of those people will have more familiarity with the court system, and some won't. Um, not necessarily in a bad way, but um, but right. I, yeah, it's a huge group of people who you know aren't necessarily feeling like this is something that they ordinarily get. That's absolutely true. I'm sure, and there are many people that we turn away who say, "Well, I can't afford a lawyer. What am I? What am I supposed to do now? I can't afford a lawyer." The difference, though, is that you know, like I don't think I could afford a lawyer, but but I uh, I know how to complete a court form. I know how mm-hmm. to look stuff up online. I know how to tell the court when my address changes. It's just the court system is built for someone like me. Um, more than someone who is living from crisis to crisis. In oh poverty. yeah, there's. I mean, there's. There's abject poverty, and then there's the access to justice gap, which is just not being able to afford a lot of things, but not a lawyer. Right. And something I sometimes say when people kind of are like, why don't they trust the court system? I don't get it. You know, I sometimes think, I wonder if it's a little bit how I don't really trust the IRS. You know, if I get a letter from the (laughs) IRS, I'm not usually thinking good thoughts, like, oh, this is a great thing, you know. And I think that really the people who were serving in poverty, you know, often, you know, they've been picked up for loitering, you know, because they didn't have a place to go or um, sometimes shoplifting, you know, which is something that I certainly don't condone. But I sometimes understand it. You know, if you're if you have a family of four to feed and you're making twenty thousand a year altogether, um, or um, what are some of the other criminalization of poverty? Well, I mean, not even criminal. Up? I mean, I, I've been a lawyer for you know well over a little over a decade, and I, I don't I don't necessarily think I believe the court system is there to help me. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. You know, right. I, I'm not sure I look at the court system a whole lot differently than I do look at the IRS. It's a it's a kind of a vast, uh, complicated, arcane system that um, will grudgingly do what I want if I use the magic words. Yes, 
Yes, I, so, you're and right. I, and I have hostile. the keys. Yep. You know, I have the keys to the court system, just like every other lawyer, too. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not quite to hostile, but it, it isn't a friendly place. Yes, yes. I, you know, I'm ashamed to tell you how long as a lawyer it took me to realize that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little slow, I think. Yeah. But in terms of just some tips I have for, you know, how you can build trust from someone who may look at you as part of the system that hurts them. Mm-hmm. There's a couple things I recommend, and one of them um, is just find something in common with them. You know, it's, it's a very small thing, and it's very easy to do, but it can make a world of difference, you know. And that's really something we do all the time with each other. I mean, I think even, you know, Sam, when you and I have been at the same meeting, you know, we'll say something like, the, something that we share in common. You're like, oh, my gosh, it was so hard to get here because it was 20 below outside, and how did you do it, you know? Or, mm-hmm. or, or kids. sometimes, you know, people... Kids are easy if you have them. What's that? Kids are really easy if you have them. Kids are easy, or pets. Mm-hmm. Uh, pets are great. Um, I've seen people do it just on birth month. Oh, I see you're born in June. I am too. You know, something, it may sound trivial, but something that humanizes us in the eyes of someone who really thinks of us as other. Like probably not uh, the best is... time to talk about your scotch collection <laughs> or your your BMW. <laughs> well, it's funny you bring up scotch collection because people, um, overall, uh, people in our society tend to think of the poor as being um, having a greater uh, percentage of alcoholism than uh, people in middle class. Yeah, and, but not lawyers. <laughs> but not lawyers. I know it. They don't. In fact, they don't. And part of it is that part of it is that they have lower uh, percentage than lawyers. And part of it is there are no when you're in poverty, there are no effective treatment options. Right. I mean, it's a disease, and and we don't offer treatment to those in poverty that are proven to be effective. Well, I mean, I, it's it. I guess it makes me chuckle, but it's probably worth repeating that if you've got someone in poverty sitting across the table from the lawyer, it's the person in the suit who's much more likely to be the one with the drinking problem. Right. Right. Exactly. Just yeah. to, just to be clear. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. You know, and then something else I would just say is, and I do this even with um, people I supervise. I find it a really useful. Um, a really useful way to kind of just make somebody more comfortable. When, if I'm asking a personal question or if I'm asking a question that might seem threatening, I will preface the question with why I'm asking it. And I think people in poverty can really appreciate this because they are so tired of people asking them personal questions. It's like, you know, where's the respect? Where's the, the boundaries? And so many times I'll just acknowledge, you know, hey, I know these are kind of personal questions and I'm, I'm sorry to be asking them. Here's why I need the information. Here's what the judge is going to need or here's what this form needs just so that they have a sense of um not a sense of equality but more of a sense of kind of respect and understanding i I'm, i just wrote that down as a um thing that i could probably do to improve my communications with my wife um <laughs> I, <laughs> that just great. seems like generally a good idea is nobody likes to be peppered with questions um and uh and giving i i think what i think what that does is it's like taking someone's hand and guiding them through the process rather than just demanding that they follow behind you blindingly and trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've alluded to something a couple of times now, which you you and I have talked about before, which is affinity bias. And you've mentioned it, and I'm fascinated by it, um, because I think it is so much a part of the legal system and representing clients that I hadn't really keyed into I hadn't given it a term before, um, but it's something we even I've even talked about with my clients. I just didn't even know what I was talking about. So why don't you give us the quick preview of what that is so we can talk about it? Sure. 
Right. And I just learned a term myself about, about six weeks ago. So I'm, I'm not nice. you know, that far ahead. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how automatic we are as human beings to judge something that is different from us as inferior. Mm-hmm. It's just automatic. And one way that I teach this when I'm, when I'm giving little seminars is, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Boston and I moved to Minneapolis about 15 years ago. And there are some cultural differences between Boston and Minneapolis. And I don't, um, especially around resolving conflict. And so in Minneapolis, people are much more, you know, they kind of want to keep things more harmonious. So conflict sometimes might not come up, you know, mm-hmm. they might just kind of agree to disagree without even talking about the fact that they're doing that. Where my experience in Boston was much more that, you know, if, if somebody disagrees with you, you're going to hear about it. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved here to Minneapolis, um, I uh, quickly learned that the way that I was used to resolving conflict was not um, done here and actually not that useful here. But what I found most interesting is that, you know, I could go to any audience, any audience that I've given this presentation to, I can say, uh, so how do you think people from Minneapolis uh, talk about people from Boston? Oh, you know, it's easy. Nobody, there's, I mean, this is not something that is hard for the audience. They'll say, oh, you know, <laughs> um, aggressive, um, they don't know how to behave, they're rude, they're obnoxious. And then I'll say, well, and how do you think people from Boston refer to people from Minneapolis? And they're like, well, we know that it's passive aggressive, stab you in your back, you know, nice to nice to your face, but nobody ever resolves anything. And 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 my point is not to create these stereotypes. My point is just look at this. Like who like we just we don't say, Oh, isn't that interesting how they resolve conflict in Boston? Okay, well now I know, so I'll know how to act around that person. We actually judge it as bad automatically. Mm-hmm. And so I think the trick as just human beings living out our lives, you know, is not to feel bad about the fact that we do that because it's just human. And I think it had an evolutionary purpose that kept us alive. But if we're not aware of it, if we're not aware that we are biased towards what's like us, we will lose the ability to act according to our values. You know, I used we to... We will, yeah. I, I, I used to um, talk about my with my clients before a settlement conference. Um, I, I would explain to them. I said, "Look, you know, like ideally, what we're what we're going in there to decide is how much money they are going to give you." And um, and there are a few people in in the rooms that we're going to be in who are going to be making that decision, and and we really aren't the ones making that decision. Um, but there's going to be a, a mediator, and there's going to be uh, another lawyer, and potentially an insurance t- adjuster, and those people are going to be deciding how much money to give you. And, you know, maybe whether or not to give you any money at all, but hopefully how much to give you. Um, and what we, you know, it, it sucks, but they're much more likely to give more money to somebody who looks like them. Um, if you don't look like them, then they're going to feel like they're giving money, um, like they, they don't want to give money to somebody who's different um, and maybe not worthy of the amount that they're putting together. So it's an advantage if we can all walk in there in suits and look like we go to the same places and do the same things because it's going to be easier for them to write you a bigger check. Right. And that is why, for example, the World Justice Project, which is this international organization, one of their criteria for judging whether a country has justice in the country is whether the the makeup the the makeup of the legal professionals reflects the makeup of the community at large. Mm-hmm. Now that's a pretty big one. 
It's big, and and I don't I don't know if any country. I mean, there might be some where they're just so homogenous that there actually is that. But you know, and here in the United States, we we just feel miserably at that. <laughs> I bet, and, and it and it does come up when you're working with your clients, right? I I I guess I, I'm going to go ahead and start talking about affinity bias now when I when I talk about why I. Um, did the things I did for my dress code, for example, and why why I had the kind of desk I did. Um, I would always have a, a table, not a desk. Um, I, I, th- I felt like a big, you know, oak desk with a desk set on it and a, a writing pad and stuff was just imposing. And I didn't want to impose. I wanted to sit across from my clients at a table. I would always move my monitor out of the way so that there was no barrier between us. Um, and I wanted to sit across the table from them. And I um, famously refused to dress up. Um, I didn't wear suits in the office. And part of my reasoning was that, and, and this is serious, I, I also I don't like wearing suits every day, but, but right. I justified it by, <laughs> I justified it by because like I, my, many of my clients were just regular people. Um, and many of my clients, I guess I guess now that I'm thinking back on it, didn't uh, didn't have a lot of experience with the legal system. and I, I didn't want to be the man. Right. I wanted to be on their side, sticking it to the man. I didn't want to feel like they were walking into the man's office. Um, and so I wore, um, you know, eventually I started throwing on a blazer over my T-shirt. But, I, you know, I wore a T-shirt and jeans most days. And when people walked in, um, there's no I didn't want them to be intimidated by me. I wanted them to think that I was a regular guy. And then I wanted to demonstrate to them that I was smart about the law and that I knew what I was talking about. Um, and I think it worked. I, you know, nobody ever complained about it. And I think it was a good way for me to build a rapport for them from the get-go and set a good tone at our first meeting. I think that makes sense. I know that there's some disagreement about that where some people... Oh, there's a ton. I've actually recommended <laughs> that. I've recommended what you're saying. Not so much in the way of dressing, but I've recommended kind of the similar thing of, you know, try to equalize the power between you and your client because in the client size, you have so much power in in this arena, you know, in the problem. Well, especially that they if have. you're in a skyscraper in a in a big, you know, glassed-in conference room with secretaries yes. and things, that's really an unequal thing. That yes, we probably don't yes. realize how unequal that is. Right, right, because they're so used to it. And so so I really encourage attorneys to, to think about the ways that um, they have more power and look for how to equalize it. And so, for example, one of the things I said earlier is one way of doing that where you're just not, you're not asking questions without kind of giving them the reason behind it. So that's, that's a way to kind of equalize the power. Or like you said, like sitting, being aware of where you sit um, in relation to them. Or not, uh, one thing I recommend is, you know, when your client tells the story, um, don't take notes the first time. Like, just really look at them and make eye contact and make sure that your body language, which is something they're going to be keying into so much, um, make sure your body language is is reflecting, you know, that you're wanting to help, that you're open, that you're listening. Um, and then and then you can say, maybe after they're done, you can say, you know, thank you, that, thank you, that was really helpful. I've got an overview. Now I'd like to take notes, if that's okay, so to help me remember. And then um, you ask them to tell the story again. But then what's really effective is that because often our clients have more of a circular way of talking or um, conveying information that can feel kind of crazy-making to to people like us who are more linear thinkers, then say, okay, now I'm going to tell the story back to you and let me know if I miss anything. That's a really good way to do it. Yeah. It's so often that that's when we're going to get some of the really, um, some pivotal facts. You know, and uh, honestly, another way to do this... um, uh, and I know that there are some, there are definitely some different concerns over this, and why you might or might not want to. But um, with your client's permission, uh, you might want to just record that conversation so you can take notes later. 
Um, mm. I, I think it's a bad idea to have a phone on the table because I think a phone in view is actually a, it's kind of a um, sort of a negative social presence um, when you're having a conversation. Um, so if you're going to use your phone, maybe, um, maybe just sort of gently put your, put your, um, uh, your legal pad over top of it so that it's not blatantly out there or something. Um, but, and there are some people have, people have some concerns about that. Does it become a discoverable thing? Um, once you've got a recording, I, you know, probably no more so than your notes, but, um, uh, and I get that people are nervous about that. And so before you start recording your conversations with your clients, you might want to just put some thought into that, but it is another way to avoid, um, taking notes. And I think taking notes on a laptop is just a terrible idea. Putting up a wall between you and your, because putting up a wall between you and your clients is really oh, an awful, oh, sure. it's an awful attorney client experience. Um, yeah. uh, plus, um, you don't retain nearly as much when you put when you type as when you write, um, that your hand on a page is a much better retention tool anyway, and your notes will be better. So interesting. That's, yeah. that's science. I'll ask you about that. <laughs> um, because because when you when you type on a laptop, you try to take everything down, which is actually a, a horribly counterproductive way to take notes, um, unless you're actually trying to be sort of a, a transcriptionist. Um, but uh, but when you when you take notes, you don't want to just take everything down. You actually just want to take down the salient points. Um, and and there have been a number of studies. Like people perform better on tests um, if you make them take notes by hand or you force them to listen. If you give them a laptop, it actually has a negative impact on their performance, even wow. if you let them study their notes before they take the test. Well, I'm writing that down because <laughs> In, with a pen. <laughs> that's a really good piece of information <laughs> for me. We have a post yeah. on our site about that actually because I've always believed that, but I'd never yeah. had anything to back it up. But now there were a couple of corroborating studies on that, so. Interesting. Take notes by hand. You know, one other thing I was just I was just thinking of that I'd like to offer is that another kind of power imbalance is if we look at our watch. Mm-hmm. And one thing um, that I've heard people or look at a clock, you know, and one thing that I've heard that can kind of equalize that because it you know it implies okay I'm important I have other things to do your time is limited with me and you know that might be true but there are ways to do it that are I think more respectful and even just saying something like at the beginning of the time together um, so you know I have an hour or whatever the time is or whatever you've allocated um, and I'd like to get through what we can and just you know I'm going to have to end it this time because then I have another client coming in so that it's not so much that, you know, if you put the context around it, that people will understand it more and take it less as a personal rejection of them, which is um, a very easy thing to do. I always like to put together an agenda too for the meeting um, Mm -hmm. because then, then they know that there are more things to get to. (laughs) And so if you give them an agenda and a, and a rough time limit, or even a, a hard time limit, um, then they'll be the ones looking at the clock and making sure that they get to everything because it's it's like it's like if you have three things that the do- you want the doctor to treat and the doctor says, well, I have 20 minutes to treat all of those things and you spend 20 minutes on one of them, you're going to be unsatisfied. Like, like you're going to manage your own time if you, ha- if you know you have you're an right. agenda. You're right, that's great. Putting that's it on a, white pa- on a whiteboard next to, in the conference room or next to you so people can see it. Um, people appreciate your organization, and they also it becomes a real good time management tool. You're sharing. You're sharing in the responsibility of getting through everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let, let's try and hit one of the last pieces, which we've been mentioning a couple times too. But um, but this one seemed really intriguing to me, and we didn't talk a lot about it in preparation for this uh, conversation. But I wanted to pull it out of you, which is. 
you said it was important to understand the difference between oral and print communication and how that um, how that goes into an attorney client relationship. Right, and we touched on it a little bit, but but it's yeah, it's really useful to kind of um, to package it. I think so. One thing that I have found that can really derail a relationship, and again, we're talk- that's what we're talking about basically, is is a relationship that is functioning between you and your client. Um, one thing that can really derail it is that there are different ways of communicating that have been studied as consistent around the world. If, in general, people are born with what is called oral culture, and over time, those who are lucky enough to have you know, the opportunity to go to schools and get a good education, and especially lawyers fit in this category, over time become more and more what's called print culture. Mm -hmm. So oral culture is more, um, I'll just kind of, you know, summarize it real quickly. Oral culture is more more concrete, you know, more, um, for example, dependent on body language for to have um, precision and thoughts. Um, It's more... um, circular in story, in story structure, it's often more entertaining. It's often, you know, someone who's in oral tradition will um, probably be a much better storyteller than someone like me who is linear. And many people think of Native Americans as being oral, and that may be true, but it's not just limited to um, Native Americans. It's, it's really across, uh, across generational poverty. When someone has been more educated, and especially the process of going to law school, we become more um, what they call print culture, which is that we rely more on the printed word than we rely on a friend, for example, to tell us. Someone in oral culture, mm-hmm. if they have a question, they'll ask a friend. Someone in print culture, they'll, they'll go online, more likely, or they'll research it. Or, and they'll, they'll, be, they'll be communicating in ways that are more linear, like first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. They'll have more kind of that sentence structure that is um, more common to writing. And precision will be often conveyed in more precise word choice. Print culture has a lot more, people in print culture will have a lot more, a uh, lot larger of a vocabulary than people mm-hmm. in oral culture. And so, um, and there's so many, you know, when you take someone from print culture, you take them from oral culture, and you have them in, a, in an office in a meeting, or you have them in a courtroom um, where they're trying to, sh- you know, c- convey information back and forth, it can be, it can just completely derail conversation. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, it really does when you hear it. Uh, I remember the first time I heard it thinking, I don't know what that means, but I've seen it so often, and I've seen how we lawyers go crazy with someone with a circular story structure, and I include myself in that. I am about the most linear person (laughs) you can meet. Um, And so it really takes... um, it takes specific strategies to make sure that someone who is um, oral culture that we're that we're both convi- that we're both understanding them what they're saying and that we are being understood by them, both of which are important to to a good um, relationship. Gotcha. So, um, how should how should we tie this up at the end here? Sure. Actually, I've got a couple things I'd say about the the oral. So, if if we're trying to make sure that we're being understood, I think one thing that I often will say to clients is I'll say, um, you know, I'm. I just want to say I'm. I'm really used to talking in legal language, and I really try to get myself out of that. And if you, if I am saying something that is just not making sense, please let me know. 
And one reason I say it that way is because it is very clear with the client that it's my responsibility to be clear and that it's not on them. They're not stupid if they don't mm-hmm. understand. So it makes it more likely that someone will say, oh, you know, can you, I don't get that. Can you go over it again? Um, I'll also go over, I'll also actually give them a written summary of what I've, of what I'm saying or what I will say, and I'll go over it with them and then they can take it with them so that they can review it later with maybe another professional who will be helping them. Um, because many times when our clients walk away, they will say they have understood things that we haven't said or didn't mean. Um, and so having something in writing makes it more likely that they will follow through with what we've asked them to do. Well, and it sounds like I think something that you mentioned earlier might make sense here too. Um, which is ask, you know, if you, if you're giving them an important concept, whether it's a settlement arrangement, um, your contingent fee agreement, um, or their options for resolving this thing, um, maybe it makes sense to have them explain it back to you. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I was, I think when I was in law school in my misdemeanor, um, criminal defense clinic, uh, that was, he made us explain settlement arrangements uh, or, um, um, plea agreements, uh, both ways, you know, explain it to your client and have them explain it back to you so that you're satisfied they know what they're getting into. Um, therapists do that, right? Um, you listen to somebody else talking and then tell them what they just told you. Um, and you yeah. often don't do it well. Um, I, that, that seems like maybe a useful tool. And, and I definitely did it with um, settlement arrangements because I wanted to make sure they understood where the money was going, um, how much they were getting, how much I was getting, uh, where, how it was all going to work so that they could never come back and say, well, I didn't understand it later. I want them to sure. understand it. Um, right. Oh, so. yeah. Excellent practice. Yep. Uh, so it seems like one one of the I love the, also the idea of you know stop me if it doesn't make sense but um, I think it's also nobody wants to look like they're dumb <laughs> right um, so I uh, you know you have the if somebody's just sitting there nodding at what you're saying um, that's actually a symbol if they're if they're not asking questions if they're not making expressions that show that they're agreeing disagreeing confused if they just sort of are sitting there and nodding that's actually a really good indication that they're not getting it right. So they're they're wanting you to to believe they're getting it, but that's a good good indication to stop and try try something else. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, what I would I mean, you were talking about maybe wrapping this up, which um, makes sense. And I I would just say if people are interested in more information, we um, Volunteer Lawyers Network actually has a a, a wiki online that is anyone can access 24-7 that, that kind of goes over a lot of what we've been talking about. And actually, I might edit it to add some things that you said, Sam. Yeah. But the um, the website, if anyone is interested, is uh, W, P as in Peter, B as in boy, C as in Charlie, wikispaces.com. So wpbcwikispaces.com. And you know what? I'll go ahead and include that link in the show notes, too. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. Martha, thank you so much for being with us today and for your insight into working with low-income and impoverished clients. Um, Really fascinating, and and it sounds like we may have enough more to talk about that we should do it again someday. Well, I would really enjoy that, and thank you so much for spending the time about this. It's just just so important, and really, um, as lawyers, the more that we can do to make the court system accessible for all, the more we'll have a, a good, just, and thriving society. So thank you so much for your time and interest in it, too, and your service. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. 
And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.